Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Sunday, June 3rd, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode 16. This episode is brought to you by Ocean State Organics, our permaculture farm that creates tools for sustaining backyard food production in urban areas. If you enjoy this content, please support us by going to www.patreon.com slash oceanstateorganics. Today's episode is going to be an introduction to mycology, which is the study of fungi. On a few previous episodes of this podcast, you may have heard me talk about mycelium while discussing soil and about the importance of having it in your garden. Yet I found as I learned more about fungi, I had been severely misinformed about its purpose and why it's so necessary not only to our gardens, but to the planet at large. So my perspective shifted to a great reverence for these organisms, and when I first learned that they're also our evolutionary ancestors, well, I couldn't help but be astounded by that. So first I'm going to speak about the history of fungi and fungal networks in the development of Earth, and the mycelial archetype that you may now recognize more often in the web of life. And then I'll get into some basics about how mushrooms live and reproduce, how they're intimately connected to the rest of the ecosystem, which would inevitably fail without them, and how mushrooms can teach us about the benefits of mutualism. I'll then go over some basic concepts supporting how mushrooms can help us medicinally, ecologically, and agriculturally. If you've ever picked up a log that's been lying on the ground for a while and you turn it over, you might see these fuzzy growths on the log that resemble cobwebs, but these are not actually cobwebs made by spiders, they're visible mycelium. So what you're seeing is a fine web of cells that can stretch great distances and actually make up the architecture of soil. So the fruiting bodies of these fungal networks are known as mushrooms, but the organism itself is mycelium. Mycelium is arranged in a network that has the greatest mass of any individual organism on the planet. It is intelligent, and it devises enzymatic and chemical responses to challenges, sharing information through their membranes. Animals are most closely related to fungi. Over 650 million years ago, we shared a common ancestry. Fungi evolved to digest food via secreting acids and enzymes and then absorbing those nutrients. And they made land over 1 billion years ago, partnering with plants which lacked these digestive properties. Many millions of years later, a branch of fungi led to the development of animals. And these particular fungi evolved to capture nutrients by surrounding their food with cellular sacs, And this is known to be the primitive stomach. And eventually, these species would move from their aquatic environments where they were living to land. And when they did so, they had to develop skin, which was composed of many layers of cells, to prevent moisture loss and prevent infection. Around 250 million years ago, a catastrophe, possibly a meteorite struck, and it's suspected that most of Earth's species were wiped out at this, at this time, so there's a major disruption. And the Earth darkened with dust clouds, and it caused vast extinction of the plants and animals that were forming. However, fungi moved in to begin recycling all of these debris and feeding off of them. And this would happen 
185 million years later at the second mass extinction, which is, you know, resulting in the end of the dinosaurs. And cap and stem mushrooms, as we know them, first developed between that first and second mass extinction. So they survived the second mass extinction. And the oldest known mushroom specimen is encased in amber and was collected in New Jersey, dating back to around 94 million years ago. There's a hypothesis called the Gaia Hypothesis, and it theorizes that the planet intelligently chose its course to help it sustain and breed new life. So if we think that mycelium is a sentient membrane, it can be said that mycelium has piloted ecosystems and that it's favored successive species. It prepares the environment by growing ecosystems which feed itself and cycles nutrients through its food chain. Further pointing to the sentience of mycelium is a Japanese study that was set up like a maze, and the maze was a map of Tokyo, very detailed, really cool. And they had food at the end, a reward at the end, sort of like the cheese and mouse maze sort of idea. And what they did was introduce mycelium, and at first it was rather exploratory, but as they introduced it a second time, it learned. It consistently chose the shortest route to the food and it started to bypass dead ends and open or empty exits. And so the researchers concluded that the the neural networks in mycelium are deeply intelligent, that they can find food and seek it out and uh, make choices. So another reason we might want to think about the intelligence of mycelium is because it physically resembles a lot of other patterns that we're familiar with. Some of these include hurricanes, the internet, the spiral galaxy, brain neurons, and they all have a similar structure. It's also connected to the famous string theory in that astrophysicists believe that the best form of energy conservation comes in these threads of matter energy. The arrangement of these strings resembles mycelial networks. And similarly, the internet was designed to pool data and increase computational power, and we call it the World Wide Web. And the web part is important because we as humans have built the internet off of an archetypal structure and so understanding this is, you know, believed to be responsible for part of the exponential leap in our own computational power as human beings. So when we're talking about mushrooms, it just got really deep for me really quick because this information completely shifts the way that I understand what the function of, of mushrooms are. It's a lot bigger than I, than I ever imagined uh, and integral to life on Earth. That's, that's the key here is that we can't, we cannot live without them and that they are our ancestors. So after understanding that and having that as your context, I'm going to talk about the mushroom life cycle 
and start to understand the different types of mushrooms and how they can be our allies today. Though it would be easier to conceptualize in a vacuum, the mushroom life cycle and mushroom behavior cannot be separated from the other organisms that it interacts and coexists with. Mushrooms reproduce through spores, which are sometimes visible as dust when they're in mass. And when a mushroom ejects spores, they spread out and feed. And when the temperature and the moisture are right, they will germinate into threads of hyphae. Hyphae grow and branch outwards. This is that cobweb structure that I was talking about. They'll form connections with other hyphae, and that will create what we call a mycelial mat. Mycelium strengthens and matures. It feeds, and when it forms... There are cell aggregates called primordium, which are basically baby mushrooms that begin to form. These mushrooms will mature, they'll spread out more spores, and the process of building mycelium structure continues. The whole process of spores to mycelium to mushroom can happen as quickly as in just a few days. And mushrooms have a diversity of shapes and sizes for the purpose of dispersing their spores. Sometimes they'll even move their caps in a way that uh, picks up the airstream so that the spores will be transported by the wind, uh, as well as insects and mammals all participate in moving spores. Mushrooms can be grown from spores or just from mycelial tissue, so they're always focused on proliferating. And they can be categorized into four basic groups. These are saprophytic, parasitic, mycorrhizal, and endophytic. However, what you'll find across nature is that things are not so rigid. You know, categorizing things is more of a, a human obsession. These mushroom groups are much more reflective of a spectrum, and there are some overlapping categories within them. So Mushrooms are no exception. As some species will employ multiple strategies and they won't exactly fall neatly into any of these groups. One example of this would be some mushrooms that will initially act as a parasite and then after their host has died, they will act like a saprophyte growing on what is already dead. Populations of these different groupings of mushrooms will vary depending on the environment, and the goal is for them to be in balance, but we can say that deforestation in general would increase saprophytes and would decrease mycorrhizal mushrooms. So now let's think about what that means. Saprophytic mushrooms are decomposers. Most gourmet and medicinal mushrooms would fall into this category specifically as wood decomposers. These mushrooms are the recyclers of the planet. They proliferate biological communities where they grow. Their primary purpose is to build soil. When matter falls from the canopy of trees and plants onto the ground, the job of these mushrooms is to feed on them by secreting their enzymes and acids. When they do this, they'll break down larger molecules into simpler ones, reassembling them to be used as nutrients that are plant-soluble. So this means living plants, insects, and animals can all benefit from the presence of saprophytic mushrooms. 
Saprophytes are loosely categorized into primary, secondary, and tertiary decomposers. So each one would rely on its former to create a habitat for it to thrive in and aid in the furthering of the decomposition. The second grouping of mushrooms are parasitic mushrooms. When we think of parasites, we think of them as being destructive creatures. Um, I have like sort of gross associations of something feeding off of you. It, it sounds negative, but in the case of mushrooms, we can think of them a bit differently. Parasitic mushrooms are indeed predators, so they do aim to kill their host. However, they have alternative purposes in the environment, uh, and some of that is feeding other organisms. So most parasitic fungi are microfungi, barely visible to the human eye, and eventually their infection on the host tree will create lesions, uh, and you'll actually be able to observe those. When parasitic fungus is prominent, it's usually an indication of some other ecological imbalance, such as pollution, acid rain, or insect damage. Otherwise, parasitic fungus works alongside the other groupings of fungus which compete with it and keep it in balance. After a host tree is killed, parasitic mushrooms will compete for dominance with the saprophytes. This brings us to our third grouping of mushrooms, the mycorrhizal mushrooms. Rhizal means related to roots. Therefore, mycorrhizal fungi form mutually beneficial relationships with pine trees and also other plants. In fact, most plants have some mycorrhizal partners. And this is what makes mycorrhizal, mycelium, and mushrooms so interesting to farmers because there's an obvious connection of mutual beneficial relationships that are coming out of the interaction between the mushrooms and your plants. Some of these mycorrhizal varieties form exterior covers around plant roots and others will enter the root systems directly. The health and longevity of any forest, especially the old growth forest, is dependent on the presence, abundance, and variety of mycorrhizal fungi. And this is because both plants and fungi will benefit from their relationship. Mycelium will grow beyond the plant's roots, and it will actually bring nutrients and water back to the host plant as well as increasing the plant's ingestion of nutrients while decomposing surrounding debris. Fungi benefit from the secretion of plant sugars, and mycorrhizal fungi have the ability to transport nutrients to trees of different species. So again, with the mycelial intelligence, there is an obvious intelligence between mycorrhizal fungi and the plants. They're working together to stay healthy and to also build soil, which continues the ecosystem, which ensures their survival. The last major grouping of mushrooms are called endophytic mushrooms. Endophytes are benevolent, non-mycorrhizal fungi that partner with plants and trees. So they don't work directly with the plant roots to deliver nutrients like mycorrhizal would, but they do thread themselves in and around the roots and the root ball, which increases nutrient absorption, 
provides safety from infection or predator insects, still does all of the other elements of having mycelium around without the explicit mutualistic relationship. So endophytes are also another benevolent type of mushroom. Mycorrhizal, saprophytic, and endophytic mushrooms all benefit plants in really key ways. They prevent starvation and dehydration. They prevent parasitization by chemically repelling bacteria, insects, and other harmful fungi. They provide a home for plant roots and the microbes that will grow around them. They support biodiversity of organisms in their habitat and help feed the plants directly at the root ball. Most importantly, they build soil. So they feed the soil food web. And feeding the soil food web means that you are participating in the nutrient cycle that is required for every plant grown on earth. Because plants need to be able to eat food that they can consume just like we need to be able to digest food with our enzymes. Plants don't have enzymes, so they rely on mushrooms to help break down big molecules for them so that it becomes in bite-sized edible forms that their roots can suck up and actually benefit from. So mycelium is the great meeting place between death and life. It fuels the life cycles of all the rest of the organisms in a given ecosystem. This is where the discussion on mutualism comes into play. Mycelium is undoubtedly interdependent with other organisms, as you can see just from learning about each of the different groupings and how they function within the environment. You can see that they are serving a purpose for the plants and animals. But many organisms specifically seek out habitats with certain mycelium for the purposes of protection. One example of this mutualism is the way that insects interact with mushrooms. Termites specifically construct their colonies with organic matter that will cultivate mycelium. When they eventually abandon their nest, mushrooms will sprout directly from the termite mound. Other insects engage with mushrooms to act as fungicide and bactericide towards hostile pathogens. Many ants use mycelium to attract a bacteria that keeps away harmful parasites. So this has resulted in a partnership between ants and mycelium that has lasted over 50 million years and allowed for their species both to proliferate. Another example would be snails which use fungi's enzymes to help them digest plant matter that would otherwise be inedible for them. So as you can see from these examples, fungal alliances show us the interconnectedness of nature and how it evolved together as one life form, as one macro being. And it brings to light the importance of understanding that we're just a small part of that much larger life system one which has some inherent ideals, I think, around mutualism, balance, and interdependence. So where do we fit in this story? How do human beings interact with mushrooms, and how can they benefit us? Anyone who has been paying attention knows that the intense challenges we face in the future are connected to how we treat the ecology. And even in such a high-tech world, 
Most of our medicines, even the most synthesized pharmaceuticals, had some origination in nature. Even penicillin would not have been discovered without a moldy cantaloupe. Because of our deep evolutionary history, humans and mushrooms risk infection from some of the same hostile microbes. Yet mycelium has an incredible track record of resisting infection. This is what makes it some of the best medicine known to humans, and with around 140,000 different species and more counting, there's much more promise in their antibiotic and antiviral abilities than is common knowledge. Mushrooms have the proven ability to stop certain bacterial growth and not others, which again suggests that mycelium is able to influence the microbial panel in its immediate ecosystem. The medicinal roster runs deep, with studies showing the capability of turkey tail mushrooms to inhibit HIV type 1 infection, gypsy mushrooms inhibiting shingles virus, influenza A, and RSV, reishi mushrooms exhibit inhibiting qualities on herpes simplex 1 and 2, a glycoprotein found in oyster mushrooms was shown to inhibit HIV and boost immune response. The list goes on. So the first direct way that fungus is our ally is that we have an ancestry and that many of the properties found in mushrooms have human health benefits, including immune boosting, antiviral, and antibacterial qualities. The indirect way in which fungus is our ally is that it is an ally to the planet and that it's possible that mushrooms can pull us back from some of the intense industrial and technological destruction to possibly restore the Earth's balance and to restart damaged ecosystems that are contributing to desertification as well as carbon loss to the atmosphere. We call these practices mycorestoration. A few of these practices are of particular interest to permaculture farmers and horticulturalists who also seek to regenerate the soil and create carbon sink. Prolific mycologist Paul Stamets has said, On land, all life springs from soil. Soil is ecological currency. If we overspend or deplete it, the environment goes bankrupt. Mycorestoration is an umbrella term for a series of practices which seek to use fungi to repair the soil. Learning from nature means to observe it, and when we do, we see that the best way to restore a habitat is to introduce mycelium. Especially of interest is the mushroom's ability to restore ecosystems that are damaged by pollution or other toxins. Not that it will just tolerate those toxins, but that it can actually metabolize those toxins, which dissolves them or turns them into a nutrient. Mycoremediation is the use of fungi to degrade or remove toxins from the environment. As I've mentioned earlier, fungi are great at breaking down larger molecules into smaller ones, and many times mushrooms are successful at breaking down long-chain toxins into simpler, less toxic chemicals. Because many of the bonds that hold plant materials together are similar to petroleum bonds such as diesel, oil, herbicides, and pesticides, mycelial enzymes are adept at breaking down a wide spectrum of chemicals. 
adding mycelium to a dead habitat will engage predecessor organisms and begin to start the process of habitat self-healing. In an experiment involving oyster mycelium and diesel-soaked soil, a 97% decrease in the oil's polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons were observed after just eight weeks. Not only was this sharp decrease observed, but mammoth-sized oyster mushrooms could be seen growing out of the pile. When tested in a laboratory, these mushrooms contained no detectable petroleum residues. Oyster mushrooms, therefore, could be considered an essential species for habitat restoration. And this is absolutely astounding research. It reminded me, actually, of those pseudo-philanthropic Dawn soap advertising commercials about how they would save the wildlife by washing penguins with the dawn after an oil spill. I'm sure some of you remember them. Meanwhile, this research about microremediation is not disseminated nor employed when there is an oil spill. So everything about our culture and the way that we treat the ecology and also how we've destroyed the ecology and now we need to somehow fix it, all of it seems very symptomatic. And I think mushrooms get to the root of a lot of ecological issues and they're able to turn them over anew. A lot of mycoremediation also comes in the form of mulching. So using wood chips as something as simple as wood chips as both a cover and an inoculant for mycelium. So this way you naturally introduce mycelium to the environment where it can begin breaking down toxins while also building up healthy soil above it and, and that makes it safer to interact with. Mycelium is also very talented at filtering, and this is why they can be employed to treat waste sites or sites that are contaminated with heavy metals and toxins. And this method of mycorestoration is called mycofiltration. Mycofiltration is the use of mycelium as a membrane for filtering out microorganisms, pollutants, and silt. Like a fine sieve, Habitats that are infused with mycelium can reduce downstream particulate flow, prevent erosion, filter out bacteria and protozoa, and taper water flow through the soil. This technique could be useful for farms, both in suburban and urban areas, watersheds, factories, roads, stressed habitats, or simply to protect one's own property from damaging institutions that may be in the vicinity, especially when they are located upstream from you. There are charts that you can locate that match the mycelium you need to combat a particular problematic bacteria. These can serve as customized mycofilters to prevent pathogens from continuing to harm life downstream. Customizing the mycosphere for your land can draw in a complex food web that brings diversity of nutrients from great distances while also creating filters for trapping pollutants. The basics of this system are inoculating some sort of substrate with mycelium and placing that substrate in the direct flow of the contaminated water. As the water flows through the inoculated substrate, the fine mycelial cells serve as a net to capture debris, while water runoff and organic matter will trickle through the cellular mesh and is cleansed of pathogens. Mycofiltration can be described as a living machine using mycelium to break down waste 
and strengthen biodiversity. This is why an understanding of mycelial stewardship practices is essential to a thriving permaculture farm. These restoration techniques can be combined in a variety of ways to improve the health and wellness of the habitats around us. I personally believe that these are real, tangible solutions that can be deployed relatively quickly and easily. It makes me incredibly hopeful when I think about it because sometimes the challenges that we face, especially the ecological challenges, seem too great to defeat and we seem relatively powerless. And if we fear that we're facing the next mass extinction, if evolution can tell us anything, it's that we'll want to know how to wield fungus as a sacred ally in the fight for life on Earth. Simply put, knowing how to work with fungi is critical for our survival. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please share it with someone who would enjoy it. I'm now on Apple Podcasts as Someone Somewhere, so please subscribe and rate me so that more folks can find the show. This episode was brought to you by Ocean State Organics. To support our efforts, you can donate at www.patreon.com slash oceanstateorganics. And there you will also find all of our farming resources in one place. This concludes episode 16 of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Mushrooms really can help save the world.